You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by SolarEdge. SolarEdge lets you drive your electric vehicle on solar power with the world's first two-in-one EV charging solar inverter. Run your EV on sunshine with SolarEdge. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Driven as well as Renew Economy. And um, um, this is the latest in a new series of weekly episodes sponsored by Solar Edge. And um, look, we've talked to a variety of people, most recently the solar cars, and we've talked to perhaps people um, doing trucks, making electric trucks and electric vehicles and politicians, particularly the ACT, looking at their vision for electric vehicles. Now's the time to have a look at what people are up to in retrofits. And um, there's a few different people looking at this around the country and obviously overseas. But um, I think one of the most interesting stories is a company called Jaunt, which are looking to retrofit old Land Rovers and um, probably a lot more. And um, look, joining me today is um, Dave Budge, the uh, the founder of um, Jaunt Motors. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Why Land Rovers? Uh, there's there's one uh, reason that's close to my heart, and then uh, I, I back that up with a lot of logical reasons. Um, so I, I have driven Land Rovers uh, all my life and uh, gone camping and exploring and four-wheel driving in them. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm familiar with them. My background's not in mechanics or anything, but um, I'm just, just from using them and exploring with them, I, I know them. But that... I guess brings you know brings with it an understanding of the vehicles and when we were you know I did come in with that bias um, at the beginning of jaunt but there is a number of reasons why they are a perfect vehicle for a for an EV conversion or retrofit um, and we'll that is that they yeah. yeah well they're they're basically they've basically been the same uh, same car since about 1958 so the same platform from 1958 till really 2014, same underpinnings, which means the work that we do on one can translate to to a huge model range. Um, Unlike most other classic cars, the bodies are all aluminium. And what that means is, is although people kind of, you know, forgot about them and put them in back sheds in the 70s, they haven't rusted. And if anyone's restored an old car, some of the you know the biggest time killer can be restoring rusty body body panels and getting those curves right, but when you can start with those being in you know relatively great condition apart from the paintwork, it's a huge amount of time saving. The other thing is that they're very modular. They were they were hand built and, and they were built on a singular platform that could be a Ute or a station wagon or a soft top. So we can mix and match parts and almost build stock like we're running a factory again. Um, and then the other thing is, it, which is really common to all four-wheel drives, older cars, but and still four-wheel drives, is having a, a very strong, what they'd call like a ladder frame chassis. So big, big lumps of steel down the middle of the car, that is the structural integrity, and then a very simple body on top. And what that means for an EV conversion is that you can fill that ladder frame, which is all nice right angles, with batteries. And so very much emulate what modern manufacturers are doing by keeping the battery weight low, low centre of gravity, keeping that throughout the framework of the car and not needing to intrude into the the load carrying capacity or the cabin. And it all being square means that it's very easy to work with and fit, you know, boxes of what are inevitably square batteries. 
The original designers of the Jeep must have had the electric future in mind when they built these things. Um, <laughs> of course um, they did. I, yeah. <laughs> I guess the big question, look, we'll, we'll get into a whole lot of the details later on, but I guess the big question is, okay, an electric Jeep, you've taken them camping, they're designed, they're off-road vehicles, and although quite a few of people probably like to just drive them around the suburbs and things like that. So what size battery will it have, or will that vary from model to model, and um, how far will it be able to go? Yeah, it's uh, it's probably one of the first questions um, that we get. Uh, firstly, I'm just going to point out one thing: is, is you've called it a Jeep a few times, and that's totally awesome. Uh, we so for me personally, as a you know a guy hanging out on on Land Rover forums and, and things in clubs for years, uh, maybe that hurts me a little bit. But the point of what we're doing is that if you want to, if you see that classic four wheel drive shape and you call it a Jeep, you call it a Land Cruiser, you call it a Land Rover, it doesn't matter. It's still we all have a connection to that kind of car and we're not trying to produce cars for, I guess, people who know cars. We're trying to produce cars for people who just want to have a great time with them. And so what you call it and knowing the history of the model and the make doesn't really matter because it can still give you that same experience and feeling and should, um, no matter no matter your your detailed knowledge of you know British car history. Um, <laughs> Mine but, is clearly inadequate, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, but um, but on that question, yeah. So so this is the it's it, it's always a challenging thing to answer because my my first answer is uh, my short answer is well it depends, but my long answer is um, that we can fit. So in our first first car that we're building and it's a, a short wheelbase they come in different lengths whether you're wanting a two-door or four-door that kind of thing um we're putting uh 44 kilowatt hours of batteries in and that is really taking advantage of, of most of the space uh, available uh, and the weight carrying capacity of the car um but for some vehicles that we're building down the pipeline um you know some customers are only wanting to use them say on their property and so if you're if you're whether it's a working vehicle like a bit you know these are still good as as working utes um, or it's a promotional vehicle if it's only living on your farm or your winery you might only need it to do 50 kilometers and so there's no no need to pay to lug all that extra battery around and pay for it all uh, if you don't want and and that's the thing is that because we're you know we're pretty low volume in terms of car manufacturers so we can um, we can do things bespoke and we can we can max out batteries. We can fit, fit a full complement of Tesla batteries in. We can fit like maybe 15 Tesla modules in if required and if, if the customer wants it. Um, but in most cases, that's, you know, that's not needed. Yeah. It seems that miners and farmers are smarter than your average bear because one of the big contentions about electric vehicles in the general community is that, oh, it hasn't got enough range. And they kind of forget that they don't actually need it for 99% of the time. They only probably need it for the, uh, you know, for that one weekend a year or that one long trip of the year, or maybe there's a couple of weekends a year anyway. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a, it's an interesting thing where, whether, whether it's part of our, culture here in Australia or whether it's been and and I guess what, whatever way it came about and, and I think very for the last 20 30 years very much it's been car industry marketing that has that has convinced us we need this vehicle to escape and to get away and all these kinds of words and, and language and and the rise of like you know utes and, and SUVs in Australia is I mean they dominate the car sales and so that is on one hand, there's a lot of people and a lot of reasons in Australia why you'd want that car, and that's why we're building what we're building. But on the other hand, 
they're more expensive cars and, and car makers have done a really good job of convincing us that we need the freedom machine or whatever you know spin it is that, that week. And I've been part of that industry too. So that the idea of this long, long trip, this big camping trip that you do once a year and you need to be driving around in a car every day doing 20, 30, 40 kilometres just because once a year you need to drive 1,000 kilometres doesn't, when you really think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Look, I guess the next question is how much? And I guess the answer to that is also it depends because it's going to depend on the battery size. But um, what sort of conversion costs are we talking about? And I guess all that also depends on the state of the jet that you're actually bringing in to, to have converted. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it depends is the short answer. Um, but the but we we basically – so we're, I guess, doing two things. And, and one is uh, you can you can come to us and say, I would like one jaunt, please. And that is a vehicle that we build to, to our spec. And obviously, you can choose paint color and battery capacity. But it is a complete sort of rebuild, re reconstruction of a vehicle with a combination of repaired and, uh, and new parts um, that is, you know, every nut and bolt redone, rebuilt um, to a quite a high standard. Um, so that, that you know, you, you sort of, I mean, your, your listeners here probably understand the cost of, you know, just EV parts themselves. We're talking, you know, you're starting... You're spending thirty grand um, straight away on on motors and batteries and that kind of thing. So that plus labour, um, and then so you're sort of getting into forty, fifty grand just just to get working. Um, and then it, it is the level of restoration that that you want. Um, but of course, once you've invested that money in the uh, in the batteries and things, you you tend to want to have a really great car. So. At this early stage, uh, we've got where most of our customers are sort of spending closer to a hundred grand, um, but that's for a a lot of batteries for a, a perfectly restored vehicle. Um, on the other on the other end of the spectrum, um, we have people who are coming in with a vehicle that is already restored and roadworthy and, and ready to go, and we can offer a conversion um, for them. Uh, sort of starting from about thirty-five grand, um, we're hoping to, as we as we build, you know, get this going. By starting on one model, we can start to standardise and get economies of scale that you couldn't get if you're bespoke conversion for you know every any different car. So we're really wanting to get to a point where we can we can have that standard and start bringing that that cost down and, and bringing the time the time that it takes to convert down. And, and be a bit more of a of a drive in drive out service, um, but we've just we've just got to get our standards and processes right mm. first. And you're just about to sort of make reach this major milestone of actually having this first model um, completed. Um, when do you expect that to happen? And um, give us a bit of an insight into um, some of the um, some of the things that you've had to do to get there. Yeah, uh, I, I guess it's 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 funny because I've been talking about jaunt uh, and and what we're doing and what we're planning to do for for a long time, and it's. Um, I do need to make it very clear that we're not driving around in, in joint electric vehicles just yet, um, but we are weeks away. So we have um, we have motors turning wheels uh, and all that kind of stuff, um, and then there's obviously a bit of time between having a car that you know goes and stops and steers to one that's you know finished and roadworthy and all of those kinds of things. Um, but it is it is very close, and I think that the the thing for us was was making sure that you know that you get excited by wanting to you know obviously jump in an electric car and go for a drive and so that you at first the, the desire is to just jump jump in and you know 
bolt a motor and battery up and, and get it working. And what that does is just proves that you can retrofit an electric car, but every, many people have proved that before, and um, including some of the team we've worked with and built electric vehicles before. So it's, it's not, that's not something that we needed to prove. What we needed to prove was that uh, to ourselves and to, the, to our customers, to the public, that we could do this uh, economically at scale and that we could do this in a way that that was fun and easy to use and that didn't feel like a, a complex new thing. The old four-wheel drives are intimidating, for one. They've got lots of gear sticks and they've got chokes and all these other you know funny things and they're very sort of complex to drive. And then for most people in Australia who've never driven an EV, like the vast, vast majority of the population, EVs are intimidating to drive. So we've got two intimidating things, even though both might be desirable and fun, how do we make sure that that is accessible and simple and approachable to jump in? Um, so it's taken us uh, longer than, than we, you know, I guess anything's taking us longer than we wanted. We'd love to, you know, be driving yesterday. But um, making sure that we are, you know, recording the process correctly, thinking about how we do it, making those mistakes and, and, and correcting them, but but documenting all that. And, and so we, because we're aiming to, build something that can be creating these vehicles at scale, not just one or two guys in a, in a workshop tinkering away kind of thing. So that's really sure. been the, the, the essence of the challenge that we've faced is, is making sure that we're thinking about, yes, we're building one vehicle now, but it's the start of a much bigger program of work. So Dave, uh, let's go into some of the details. Um, what can you find under the bonnet and um, does this electric Land Rover have a frunk? Yes, uh, the front question is actually an interesting one. We've had a lot of people request some storage space in there, but um, the first thing is fitting all the bits that we need to fit. So if you were to lift the bonnet, it, it looks very, very different. We basically strip everything out. And I think, I think the one consistent component is, is the wiper fluid bottle. Um, but if you were if you to open one of our vehicles, what you see is the top of the the main sort of uh, the front battery box. So just a big aluminium plate. Um, and what that's housing is, is a, is a huge amount of batteries. Below that is the electric motor, which is a lot smaller, of course, than the, the petrol motor. Uh, and that bolts directly to the gearbox. So that's all sitting down quite low. We have a bunch of um, sort of motor controllers, DC to DC converters, different things mounted on the, the firewall, which you can see and then uh, a new sort of 12 volt system to run all the lights and stereo and all those other kinds of things. Um, because, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms of, of, of all British automotive was always the electrical. So we don't want to uh, restore and reuse some of that stuff. We want to put in modern reliable systems as well. So there is, that's, that's kind of filling all the space right now. We are, we do have some very interesting stuff planned in the way that we can use, uh, I guess the very front, particularly where the radiator went, there's a little bit of space there and we might be doing some really fun things with uh, some fold down seats and stuff. That sounds pretty cool. And just, you, you mentioned the electronics as well. Um, I understand that um, from the blog that you um, just sent out to um, many of your subscribers, um, quite a bit of work was done thinking about the dashboard and how that all fits in and some of the new additions that you've got. And um, of course, Land Rover is often sort of open and exposed and um, you've got to make it waterproof and look nice. 
Yeah, look, I guess my, my background's uh, in, in design and, and mostly sort of digital design. And, and so always thinking about um, user experience. And with digital design comes the, we've all, I've always been working with sort of bringing new tech um, to, a, to a wider audience. And that means just making things clear and easy and fun to use. And the challenge with, with these old vehicles is while aesthetically I think that they're, they're amazing, um, they, you get in and it's very simple and it's a bare metal dash um, and it's very evocative and it, it is exactly what you want it to be. The, what your idea of what an old car should be versus the reality is, can, can often be quite far apart. So you forget that in the last 50 years we've invented all these standards of what the symbol for a wiper should be, what the wording for or the symbol for headlights should be. All of this stuff didn't exist. So you have, even though it's of course in English, it's some confusing language around what switches and dials do. Um, and this is even with you know cars with speedos that are reading in kilometres an hour. Um, so it's about not not changing it, but rethinking exactly the layout of these things and what people are. What's the expectation today? What what are the what are the tools? How do you drive a car these days? Where should switches be? What should what function should they have? So that's the simple stuff. Um, and obviously we can pull out a bunch of things that you don't need anymore that you don't use, like a choke, um, which, is a, which is a very confusing thing um, at the best of times and, and is obviously not needed in an electric car. But then <laughs> you could, these were- Could have left it in for yeah. sentiment, sentimental yeah, reasons. Well, I know, it should, maybe it should do something. Um, but the, the other thing was that, uh, you know, these were super basic utilitarian vehicles. And, and even up to the end of production, um, we got some higher spec versions of the Land Rover Defender in Australia, but in the UK in 2015, a radio was still optional. Um, you know, aircon was optional. And so back in the 60s, 70s, um, heater was optional, aircon didn't exist, radio didn't, you know, you, you couldn't even option one in. Um, these were farm vehicles. So that's not how most people want to use them anymore. And even in a farm vehicle, people, you know, people want some uh, luxuries they might have called them in the 80s but now they're kind of standard fitment so fitting in what the expectation and some cases the the laws require nowadays um, was I think a really fun a fun challenge to try and make sure that that didn't feel like we just you know bolted on a bunch of new stuff and kind of crammed it wherever we could but but added it in a way that you got in and and if you weren't necessarily familiar it just felt like it was original so that includes hiding power steering systems we're using. Um, and I think, you know, like, like you were mentioning in, the, in our blog this morning, I was talking about how we're going to do um, sound systems. And, you know, that, that's a challenge when you're dealing with a car that can have a roof, but can also happily not have a roof and comes, a roof comes off with six, seven bolts um, or is a soft top and is exposed to the weather. Um, how do you, and, and particularly when, you know, I, I'm, constantly fascinated that aftermarket car stereos still look like the same aftermarket stereos that they did in the 90s with you know neon lights and and sort of low-res sort of lcd screens and all this kind of stuff so how do we make it just not ugly um but also embrace the fact that the where the rest of the automotive world is trying to encourage you to part with a lot of money to buy a car that in, in many cases, it's very, very similar to most other cars on the road that they're advertising and, and trying to build value into this ownership experience over many years. So adding more and more features, more and more screens. 
we created mm. Jaunt with the intention of, yes, we're selling some, but ultimately, but what we're really trying to do is, and, and what our first vehicles are going to, is selling them to, to tourism venues so that people can rent these cars and drive around in the countryside. And the best thing you can do when you're driving around the countryside is not look at more screens, it's look out the window because that's why you're there. So how do we, <laughs> how do we make sure that we're, and, and, and the experience of using a car is very different. And we, if, if, when you, if you've hired a, a modern, you know, got in a modern rental car, um, you know, it's a normal car off the shelf and you get in and when it's been built with all this complexity or, you know, added value, that means that for you as the first time driver picking it up at an airport, it's the most confusing thing in the world. The language is different. The, the interface is different. It's like you're trying to use a, a, you know, an Android phone when you're used to Apple. So how do we make sure that, that and I, I guess we almost, um, we sometimes sort of somewhat flippantly refer to it as a single-use car. How do we create something that's easy enough that you can get in having never driven an electric car, maybe never driven a four-wheel drive, definitely never driven a jaunt before. How do you get in and go, oh, this makes sense. You turn the ignition, uh, you can play music and you can drive away and you're not overwhelmed by, you know, either technological or mechanical complexity. So tell us about four-wheel drive and electric and, and electric motors. I mean, what's the, um, does that change anything for the four-wheel drive component? And um, tell us a little bit about sort of these Land Rovers with a 45 kilowatt hour battery. So what does that do for your off-road experience and how far can you go, etc.? Yeah, so these, um, I think, you know, the biggest, the biggest asset you can have when, when four-wheel driving is, is torque at low RPMs and, and control of that. And so obviously an electric motor is just an incredible uh, thing when you're off-road because you have this amazing controllable power. Um, and, and you can also, you know, when we're combining this, when we're placing an electric motor into the original gearbox, it means you have this, this huge variety of, of gearing and you can, you can multiply that torque to a huge amount. Um, and then that goes through, I guess, what's called a, a transfer case. So basically in a, in a, in a classic four-wheel drive, you have uh, the, the engine goes into the gearbox, that goes into what's called a transfer case, and that's splitting, splitting the drive both to the front wheels and the back wheels. And so you have two sort of drive shafts coming out of that. Um, so we keep all that, and that allows us to use a single electric motor to, to drive the full drive system just as it has been for years and, and is still done in, um, in most full drives. So a lot of people will ask us around, um, we've got lots of questions around hub motors or axle motors or all these kinds of things. And apart from it being you know, a huge development expense to, to, to retrofit that kind of thing, and, and you know, four times the motors, four times the controllers, if you're talking about hub motors. I, it's not really that appropriate for, I, I don't think for a lot of cars, but it's definitely not appropriate for four-wheel drives. You, you know, Tesla is able to put a, uh, an axle motor in because then they're running uh, independent suspension. So they can keep the motor and that little gearbox up high, but we're running solid axles. So the, if we were to do something like that, then we would be putting the motor in the most dangerous and vulnerable position on the car, the lowest point in the car. So being able to keep the motor up high where it, where it always was uh, and running through that is the simplest, uh, most economical uh, thing. And, and you don't, we don't need any more power, really. Um, these electric motors can provide a huge amount more power than, than was ever in the motors uh, and obviously a, a, a huge exponential increase in torque, uh, which, which is fantastic, to, to a point where we need to be limiting the torque 
um, in some cases through software, so as not to you know put too much power through the original original system. <laughs> um, nice. But that, but all of that mechanical stuff goes some way to answering the question around range, and that's also a, another thing where it depends, right? Um, but that's this is the story of EVs and range at the moment, where you know Europe, USA, Japan all have different standards and ways of measuring range. Um, so that's the case for us too. How you drive, where you drive, all these kinds of things are going to going to play into it. I think that my biggest concern for um, you know we can we can say that hey we're we're comparable to a Nissan Leaf with with battery capacity, but we're nowhere near as aerodynamic as a Nissan Leaf. Um, if you if you're not familiar with an old Land Rover, if you could imagine it's it's like a child's drawing of a four wheel drive. Um, but probably even more square than that. So it is, <laughs> it is something that... Um, the, the crazy thing is that if you... Uh, they're traditionally, uh, you know, you put a bonnet on the... On the uh, sorry, a bonnet, a spare tyre on the bonnet, and that actually makes the car more aerodynamic. That's how square they are. So it is not a, it's not a car designed for efficiency, but at the same time, it's not really a car that feels at home on a freeway. Um, and while it can go that speed, it's really something that's designed to do 40 kilometres an hour on a dirt road. And in that situation where you're not really facing, you know, the, the full front of wind resistance, we hope that the range can be pretty good. Um, so we, we're wanting to, we want to hit kind of, if we can be talking around above 200, um, that, that starts to make everyone feel a bit more, more comfortable. But of course, you can go four-wheel driving all day and do 20 kilometres. So... Yeah, we'll no, that's right. We'll so, so, tell us about the interest then. Um, how much interest have you have? I think this is. Um, you've mentioned a queue of 150 people to test drive, or was that orders? What's um, um, what, what's out there? Yeah, so it's been it's been a really interesting journey with that. Uh, you know, it's it's easy when you're easy. It maybe is the wrong word, but it's it's a danger when you're running a startup. To um, you're you're creating a product, and particularly for us, we're we're creating a a product. As, as much for ourselves as anybody. And there's a danger in that, in that you're not really, you don't know if other people want the same thing. And you're not, um, I think if you're building a very logical, creating a very logical startup for a different industry, it's easy to go, okay, well, there's this demand in this industry and this market share and blah, blah, blah. We're very much led by our hearts in this. And we were hopeful that other people wanted the same thing that we did. and. In the very early days, and this was, this was, we thought, look, we need to jump out into the market, and if we're going to fail, we should fail fast. Not that that's a thing to aim for, but it's a, a thing that stops you investing you know, too much of your life and savings in, into a project like this. So we launched a, a crowdfunding campaign in uh, March, February, March this year, uh, just to put the word out to go, look, we're, we're doing this. We know that people are excited. You know, you put a picture of an old Land Rover and you write electric vehicle above it and people are going to click that ad or, you know, want to have a conversation about it. But will they put their, put their money down? And so during that crowdfunding campaign, going from basically something that nobody had ever heard of, um, we sold 100 days of rental bookings through that. And... And, you know, you always dream when you're running a crowdfunding campaign that it's going to go crazy viral and it's you're just going to be swamped and that would be a problem in it of its own. But um, we, we did okay and, and we got some really great coverage and through that coverage could see the the sentiment and the engagement 
you know, whether we're in, um, you know, you guys at the Driven wrote a great article on us. Um, you know, we had coverage in things like Broadsheet. Um, and, and, you know, you know, mainstream publications, including mainstream four-wheel drive publications. And so we knew that this, there was this, this market and this interest and that people were actually willing to put, you know, put down their credit card and, and pay money to, to drive the car, either for, you know, a, a short test drive or take it for a day or a weekend. So that, that kind of gave us the confidence and it gave us the, the awareness to the wider sort of automotive industry as well that we should keep going. And, and through that, um, that has led to a, a, a basically a, a really strong pipeline of orders for, for vehicles from both um, tourism venues and, and private customers. And it's led to, um, yeah, like, like I said, 150 people um, signed up on basically a waiting list to, to drive the, the first vehicles when we have them available. Um, so we've really been pushing Jaunt as a, as a rental, as a car share or a rental solution and because we really think that this can be a, a way to solve some transport issues in, in regional areas. Um, not that you know, we're in any way a replacement for a good public transport network, but most of Australia doesn't have that. And so whether you're going to Bendigo in central Victoria to go to an art gallery or you're wanting to go to the Blue Mountains, we have emails from people saying, oh yeah, you know, we have, we have thousands of people coming to Katoomba Station to get out at the Blue Mountains and see the Blue Mountains, but they get out at the train station and, and what, what do they do? There isn't a car to hire. There isn't, um, you know, there's buses that only take you to other regional centres. Tourism in Australia is very dependent on private car travel. And we, we'd like to think that we can, we can use that as a way to get people to drive an EV for the first time. And really, even though our cars are probably more than, you know, the average person wants to spend on an EV, um, that they are accessible by the fact that they are available to hire for a day because we think they're just the perfect car to like, you know, drive down, drive down to the beach or drive through the forests or whatever it might be or drive through vineyards. Um, mm. It fits that image. It's really fun and it gets you excited about EVs. Absolutely. No, it sounds like a fantastic idea, taking a train up to the Blue Mountains and driving a um, an electric Land Rover. So um, how long will it be Do we actually see, we, we can actually do that, do you think? Uh, well, we'll be doing some, some, we'll be having some test drives and doing some, some sort of fun stuff, uh, this year. Uh, and that'll be mostly with our, the people who supported us on crowdfunding, um, sort of our early adopters and, and supporters. And then next year in late January, we'll be launching, I guess, launching, uh, I'm doing air quotes here, but of course you can't see that, um, launching over in uh, Jarvis Bay at a place called uh, Mountain Ridge Winery and so we're building a, a vehicle for them and they've set up what they call a, um, a solar servo so they've got a big solar array uh, and they've got a bunch of charge points that are all charging off that um, that facility um, and as well as obviously encouraging you to you know drink their wine and that kind of thing but we'll be doing an event over there so we'll be on the south coast of New South Wales late January we'll be going up to Sydney after that early Feb and then on to Byron um, and just kind of, I mean, partly for us, it's a, it's, it's showing off the cars, right? And and it's also taking photos and and getting a bunch of people who've who've booked and and, and um, joined a waiting list to to have a go. So that will be the real first first sort of time. And then um, over New Year's and then post that, doing a lot of um, doing a lot of uh, short uh, stays in in various places around Victoria as well to to sort of build interest and also really 
for us, test test the vehicles in, in multiple um, multiple scenarios. And you know, I'd I'd like to think that um, it is purely from an engineering purpose that I've I've wanted to schedule all these uh, different uh, test drives in in beautiful locations around the country. <laughs> Look, it sounds like a fantastic um, project. And look, Dave, um, thank you very much for um, joining the podcast um, today. And uh, look, we wish you all the best of luck. And uh, we can't wait until uh, you get up to Byron and uh, we can have a drive of it ourselves. Thank you. Yeah, we can't wait to be there. It's going to be really fun. And that was Dave Budge from Jaunt Motors. Um, look out for the Land Rovers. Um, well, look out on his um, on the joint website. We'll also, look out at uh, rental places sometime down the track for when they become available and uh, when you get off the train in the Blue Mountains sometime. And look, thanks once again to our sponsor, Solar Edge, for um, enabling this uh, weekly series of podcasts. And um, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Solar Edge. Solar Edge EV chargers combine solar energy and grid power to charge your electric vehicle up to four times faster than a standard wall charger. Whether you own an EV now or want to be EV ready, future-proof your home with Solar Edge. Visit solaredge.com/aus and drive your solar further.